invite you to take your Bibles and please turn to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 as we continue our exposition in this wonderful epistle together as God's people. We have been spending some time considering the nuances and riches and the treasures that are provided for those of us who are in Christ in chapters 1 and now in chapter 2. In chapter 2, the first three verses, we've seen the devastating facts of our deadness and our deplorable condition, being enslaved by the devil, being disobedient to God, our very nature being sinful and even under the wrath of Almighty God. We call that the doctrine of total depravity. We were destitute, incapable of saving ourselves, incapable of doing anything to please a holy God in and of ourselves. Paul is, in this chapter, is building a huge contrast from where we once were in our deadness and our helpless condition to God's intervention. And we looked at verses 4 and 5 last week. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, God intervened. And that's why we are saved. He says that we are rich or that God being rich in mercy, he took pity and had compassion on hopeless sinners. His mercy, of course, is not getting what you deserve. What do we deserve because of our sin? We deserve wrath. We deserve punishment. We deserve a sentence in hell. And, of course, grace is getting what you don't deserve, eternal salvation. And the reason that Paul gives is because of our the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were rebels, he loved us. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And even when we were dead, he is the one that made us alive. Verse 5, he made us alive together with Christ. Just like that widow's son that was dead, that Elijah, through prayer, the Lord was pleased to revive, so too we were dead and had to be raised to newness of life. So let's read the passage. I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 7 to get the broader context, and then we'll jump in. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show forth the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray once again. Oh, Father, as we... Consider this text before us, and particularly verses 6 and 7, Lord. We pray that you would grant understanding. We pray that you'd pour the Holy Spirit out upon every person in this building this hour, Lord. We 
confess we need the Spirit to understand these deep and grand truths. And Lord, may we marvel at the richness of your grace yet again today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we'll be looking at this in some detail. And as I said, there's this huge contrast from verses 1 to 3 to verses really 4 through 10, but 4 through 7 for our purposes here today. And Paul is piling up words so that it has a lasting impression on us. Richness of his mercy, the greatness of his love, that making us alive, raising us up, seating us, the surpassing riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Paul is piling up words. Some weeks ago, I mentioned an illustration that Mount Whitney, of course, is the highest point in the continental United States. What is it, 14,500, something like that, uh, in the Sierra Nevada mountains. But only 80 miles from that is the lowest point in the continental United States, Death Valley. And so you've got, on the one hand, the highest place you can possibly go in the U.S., and just a short distance, the lowest place possible. And that's really the picture that Paul is is painting for us. He takes us down first in verses 1 to 3 to the lowness of Death Valley. And then he takes us up to the heavenly places with Christ, to the very peak of Mount Whitney, as it were. And again, the contrast of death to life is clearly seen before us. So uh, two simple points today. Hopefully you have an outline in your bulletin. God has united us to Christ in heavenly places, verse 6. And secondly, we'll consider God will display the riches of his grace for all eternity. And so the title of the message is Monuments of God's Grace. And hopefully that'll make sense as we work our way through this. So first of all, God has united us to Christ in heavenly places. You have been raised and seated with Christ. Now last week we took uh, verse 5, and that's the first of the three main verbs in this whole section. And that's made us alive together. That means that we are brought back to life. And each of these verbs, made us alive, and then in our text, raised us up and seated us, has that prefix, soon, in the original, which means together with. And each one of these means together with Christ. And that's why you see it in your translations. Together with Christ, raised us up with him, seated us with him. It's all about being united to Christ. And we'll unpack that a little bit more in a moment. He gives exactly what we needed in our deplorable condition. We were dead. What does he do? He makes us alive, right? That's exactly what we needed. And and then the second verb in our text, and raised us up with him. It vanquishes the problem that he set forth in verse 2 of walking according to the course of this world, living so that we're indulging the flesh and the lust of the flesh. It's not just a deliverance from hell, because that's where we deserve to go. But it's new desires, namely that we might glorify God, that we might seek to love Christ and see him as the only thing that can satisfy. Now, does this mean that we become sinless? We're made alive together with Christ. We're raised up with him. It doesn't mean that we become sinless, but it means that we are sinning less. Do you see the difference? Because we have new desires, we have new passions, we've been transformed, we've been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we have new desires. I thought of an illustration because we live in a corner lot and out on the slope, the weeds have been taking over the ground cover out there. 
and and I think there's more weeds than ground cover. Well, when we succeed in uprooting these weeds, and we've made attempts, and plant some new ground cover, it does not mean that weeds will never grow again. The point is simply this. The slope will no longer be dominated by weeds. There may be occasional weeds, and so too with us. We're no longer dominated by sin. We may still sin. We repent, we confess, beg the cleansing by the blood of Christ, but we sin less. We have been crucified with Christ. The old man is dead. We are now new creatures in Christ with new desires. We now share in his life as we long for a closer walk with him. As the psalmist says, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants after you, O God. That's the new, that's the cry of a regenerate, born again Christian. But the third verb, he says, if you look in the text, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. He seated us. Instead of being children of wrath and under condemnation, he seated us. Now, let your eyes look up just to verse 20 of chapter 1. Remember, we were looking at this prayer, and I'm not going to reiterate the whole prayer, but the third request in verse 19, that we might know what is the surpassing greatness of the power towards us who believe, the rest of the chapter unpacks what that power is. And in verse 20, look at what he says, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Now look down and look at our verse in verse 6. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. Do you see the parallel there? Just as surely as Christ has been raised and is seated in heavenly places, so are you as a child of the king. Heavenly places where God shows forth his glory. Jesus rose physically and we were made alive spiritually. And then, of course, this points, as I mentioned, to our union with Christ, that vital union, that legal union to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's clearly set forth. It's really the whole book of Ephesians shows that in that opening paragraph again and again from verse 3 to 14. It's in him. It's in Christ. It's all about being united to Christ. But in verses 5 and 6, it's, it's very vivid. It's very strong. Even in the English translations, you can't miss it. It's with Christ. It's with him. We are united to him. These three compound verbs, you know, you could take them all together. Being made alive, that speaks of our regeneration, our new birth that we have. And then being raised up with Christ speaks of the new life that we have. But now if we're seated with him in glory, we have a new destiny as well. We will be with him forever. When the Father made his Son alive in the resurrection, he furnished proof to all men that he was satisfied with the substitutionary atonement that his Son made on behalf of the chosen people of God. And we are united to him, though the the sentence would be death apart from that, but we are rescued as God's elect. That verdict is overturned and our sins are forgiven. We have been buried with him, so too we will be raised with him to newness of life, says Romans 6, 4. Romans 6, 8, now if we have died with Christ, which that's really what baptism is a picture of, right? If we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Now there's something worth 
noting here, if you look even in the English translations, you can see that this is in the past tense. If you look carefully at these verbs, it's the aorist in the Greek. And so these three verbs spoken together as taken place in the past point to one thing, the surety that this promise will indeed take place. There's a tension that, yes, spiritually we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies, but in reality, are we there? No, we're sitting right here at 7250 Extreme Avenue in San Diego, California. But spiritually, we are seated with him. This is set forth very clearly in the book of Romans. Turn back to Romans chapter 8. We see the same type of thing in this golden chain of salvation. Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. He also glorified. It's stated in the past tense. In a sense, it is yet future, but it's as sure as done. And that's really what we see here in our passage in Ephesians. Well, our second sub-point, the second half of verse 6, you reside in heavenly places. We do not take possession of this glory in full measure now, but it, it has been secured to us because of our new life in Christ, which has already begun if you are a Christian here today. It's that tension of the already and not yet, that eschatological view that, yes, we're as sure as there, but in reality, we're still here and we long for that day. Even now, our life is hid with Christ in God. Since Christ was raised and seated in heavenly places, as we read in chapter 1 and verse 20 and other places in scriptures, it foreshadows and even guarantees that our glorious bodily resurrection and glory at the consummation of the ages. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, you too will be revealed with him in glory. It's good news, isn't it? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 20 to 22 first. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And look down at verse 51, same chapter. Behold, I tell you a mystery that we will not all sleep, but we will be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. That's our future destiny. That's a transformation that's going to take place when he calls us home and we receive our new bodies. So in a very real sense, for us, we have a dual citizenship, don't we? We're citizens, most of us, of the United States, right? Or whichever country you're a citizen of. But if you are in Christ, you're citizens of heaven as well. Our home is no longer exclusively a part of this sinful world, but it is also home in heaven since we are seated with Christ. Brothers and sisters, it is heaven that now holds our affections. 
It is heaven that governs our tastes and our desires because we long to see our Savior face to face. He has done so much for us, bleeding on a rugged cross, paying for every one of our sins. And it is him who we want to see face to face. It is him who we want to worship with no sin whatsoever, with no distractions, as has been prayed a couple times in this worship service. We are a distracted people. We're distracted by our own sin. We're distracted by everything out there and all of these worldly things that that try to pull for our affections. And that's why the means of grace is so important. So is it where we can focus the binoculars and realign what's really important in this life? To live a life that glorifies God. To live a life that's going to make a lasting impact in bringing Him glory. The world no longer has claim on our affections. Yes, we're pilgrims in this world. Does that mean we we hide ourselves in here and we don't go out there? No, we want to impact the world for good. Yes and amen. And that's why we believe in outreach ministries and the various things that we do as a church. And I'd like to see us do more and do better. Our thinking has been totally transformed if you're in Christ. Instead of pleasing the flesh, we are now heavenly minded. We now want to do those things which please him. Colossians chapter 3, the first three verses. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on these things, not the things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We also share in some way with the authority of Christ. We are seated with him in heavenly places. Paul says in the Corinthian letters that we will even judge angels. There's a sense in which we share in that authority. Um, the heavenly places, verse, chapter 1, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, where every name is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. In chapter 6 of Ephesians, if you want to turn there, verse 11 and 12, He tells the Christian to put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. If we're seated with Christ, we are united to him. We share in some way in that authority. I'm going to illustrate it like this. The Queen of England exercises certain powers and privileges because what? She sits on the throne. <laughs> so she has, she has some authority. The President of the United States has privileges and powers because he sits behind that oval desk at the White House. And so to the believer is seated with Christ. He's united with him. And so he shares in the rule of Christ why we must constantly keep our affections and our attention fixed on the things of heaven while we are here below through the word and prayer and the means of grace well we've seen that we're united to christ already in heavenly places secondly look with me at verse seven and this is just this is fascinating this verse god will display the riches of his grace for all eternity verse seven explains why god lavished such love on his people so that in all eternity we would be the awe and marvel of the surpassing riches of his grace god gets all the glory look at verse seven so that when you see so that 
That's the Hina clause, and the originalist is a purpose clause. All of this wealth that he's been talking about, here's the purpose, here's why. It says, so that in the ages to come, he might show forth the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us. And there it is again, in Christ Jesus. God gets the glory for our salvation. That's the purpose. This is why God's purpose in saving us goes far beyond us. It goes far beyond you today, Christian. It go, it, his own glory is his chief end. We saw that three times in the, that opening paragraph, verses 3 to 14. At the end of, you see it again, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, three times in that paragraph. Paul in the book of Romans sets forth the glories of, of sovereign election in Romans chapter 9 and 10 and, and contrasting the Gentiles with the Jews and, and then chapter 11, how the Gentiles are being grafted in to the elect of God and, and all of that. And then at the very last verse of those three chapters, he says, he writes, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Now think about that. From him. From the very, very beginning, because he was before all things, through him, during time, as we know time, and to him, even to the end, to the alpha, to the omega, it is all about the glory of God. Satan, of course, challenged God's rule when he tempted Eve with the fruit and, and lied to Eve, and she fell, and, and Adam fell as our, as our federal representative and plunged men into sin and separation from God. But redemption, redemption restores and defends God's character. It restores God's authority, restores and defends his character. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this is the very issue at stake, vindication of God's character. Now, I want you to notice with me in verse 7, when it says that he might show. Okay, that word, I think the NAS is a little weak here. The word, um, the BDAG lexicon says, to direct attention to or cause something to become known. Show is a valid translation. Demonstrate is a valid translation. But it can even mean to display. And I like the word display best. Turn to Romans chapter 9 with me. I'll show you a couple places where this verb occurs. Having just mentioned Romans 9, in verse 17, first of all. He's just mentioned that he said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I will. Verse 16, so it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. In verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Do you see that quote there from Exodus? The word demonstrate, that's our word. The very purpose that he raised up Pharaoh is that he might demonstrate what? His power, right? And then skip down to verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels 
of wrath prepared for destruction. You see it there again, although willing to demonstrate, to display, there's wrath and power united. So that's our word here as we look in, in, in Ephesians 2.7, that he might display, that he might demonstrate the surpassing riches of his grace. My two boys sitting up here in the front row in their room, they have various trophies and so forth from soccer and baseball and football. And this year they didn't get a trophy, they got some, something else. But they have a shelf where, this, where these things are displayed. And it's displayed for all who come into that room that they might see. Now, they don't put their holy socks up there and old gum wrappers up there, right? They, what they put is, is, is these things, they're trophies, right? And that's the very imagery of what God does with us. He displays us. We're monuments of his grace. It's a beautiful picture. Not the picture I just alluded to in the boys' room. <laughs> the picture here. The riches of his grace. Actually, one other uh, verse, and, uh, and I'll just read this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where this word is used <clears throat> to display. Paul had just said, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. Verse 16, yet for this reason, I found mercy, so that, here's the reason, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example. You see that? That Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. And if we had time to read the greater context, Paul talks about how he was formerly a blasphemer, a, a um, persecutor, a violent aggressor to God's people. But he was raised up so that he might demonstrate his perfect patience. If you go to the mall, um, uh, it's not my favorite thing to do, but I know some people enjoy that. If you go to the mall and you're walking down the mall, you have store after store after store after store, and they all have what surrounding the door? Yeah, a display window, right? There's a display window. Now, what do they put in that display window? The very best, the latest fashion the thing that's esteemed and valued the most, so they think, right, whatever, it's the newest model or dress, the fall collection or whatever, they don't put last year's, they don't put a dress in there from the 1920s, right? They put something that's going to captivate your attention to display it. It's the very thing that God does. He displays his riches. Now let's look at this. You will see, we will experience the riches of his grace We've already spoken to this. Paul does not simply say God's grace. He does not say the riches of his grace. But notice what he says in the text. The surpassing riches of his grace. This word surpassing is amazing. It literally means to throw beyond. It would be like a baseball player trying to throw out at home plate. And it goes up and outside Petco Park into the parking lot or something. To throw beyond. To hyperbole. Um, it, it, that's the idea. Uh, extraordinary, exceeding a point on a scale. Um, exaggerated, uh, just exaggerated beyond. And that's the very thing that Paul is saying here. The surpassing, just exceeding riches of his grace. The sur word surpassing is translated in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It surpassed all the more grace that exceeds all of our sin. 
So the adjective surpassing is combined with riches to show clearly how utterly incomparable the riches of God's grace really is. You just can't compare it to anything. There's not something that we can pull out to try to compare it except for the very words that Paul's using and seeking to understand what it means. Listen to Charles Spurgeon as he says, see how Paul's language grows and swells and rises as he proceeds. In verse 4, we read God who is rich in mercy. Now the apostle speaks of the exceeding riches of his grace, exceeding expression, exceeding comprehension, exceeding sin itself, though that is all but infinite. The exceeding riches of his grace are infinitely itself, but they are come to us through Jesus Christ. Paul will speak of nothing good except for that which comes to us through Jesus Christ. This is the one conduit, the one pipe through which the streams of living water flow to those who are dead in sin. God's grace comes to us through Christ Jesus and through him alone. A beautiful quote trying to unpack this. Now, what is grace? We should define what grace is. We don't want to pass over this too quickly. We've given various short definitions. There's several out there. God's riches at Christ's expense, the acronym. Um, one man said this, trying to describe unmerited favor. When a person works an eight-hour day and receives a fair, fair day's pay for his time, that is a wage. When a person competes with an opponent and receives a trophy for his performance, that is a prize. When a person receives appropriate recognition for his long service or high achievements, that is an award. But when a person is not capable of earning a wage, to, can win no prize and deserves no award, yet receives such a gift anyway, that is a good picture of God's unmerited favor. John Piper said this about grace. Grace is the pleasure of God to magnify the worth of God by giving sinners the right and power to delight in God without obscuring the glory of God. That's a mouthful. I mean, you can meditate on this one sentence. I'm going to read it again. Grace is the pleasure of God to magnify the worth of God by giving sinners the right and power to delight in God without obscuring the glory of God. That's one that's worth meditating on. A Roman matron was once asked, where are your jewels? She responded by calling her two sons out and said, these are my jewels. So it is with Christ and his church. He is going to show all the surpassing riches of his grace to his children for all time. There's a saying, when you see a turtle on a fence post, you know that he didn't get there by himself, right? Turtles don't climb up fence posts, right? Uh, He didn't get there by himself. It's obvious that someone had put the turtle there. And in a very real sense, Christians are turtles sitting on top of fence posts, put there by the grace of Almighty God to be displayed. As William Hendrickson says, throughout eternity, the redeemed will be exhibited as monuments of the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Let that sink in a little bit. Let that just, just consider that because 
The reality is, is we live day to day. The reality is, is that Monday morning is coming. The reality is, is we have to go back out into that world, into the workplace and, and shield ourselves from various perversions and all of that and live in the here and now. And sometimes we can be beat up by the world. And sometimes we forget our true identity of who we are in Christ. And we forget what our destiny is, that we will be trophies of his grace on display And that's because of his great love with which he loved us, which I can't fathom that kind of love because of the riches, the surpassing riches of his grace. How discouraging it is when you hear those talk about grace and it's really cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, talks about cheap grace. Cheap grace is a grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism, with, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, and so on. He says, costly grace is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out an eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. True discipleship. If we are the children of God, and that's why then there are some that do cheapen grace in our day. Flip on the TV station. Flip on, you send in a check, and God will bless you. And a, your bank accounts will overflow. And, and grace is cheapened. Sin and a bloody atonement is removed from the message so much of the time. But the Bible is not silent on these things. And so we must not be silent. Well, very briefly, the rest of the verse here, the surpassing riches of his grace. Notice in kindness you have known his kindness as though the surpassing riches of his grace were not enough he now speaks of this kindness and this word this greek term is is fascinating it it means the quality of being helpful or beneficial goodness kindness and generosity it's rarely translated in the new testament as referring to humans to other humans but often of god the word speaks of an intentional purposeful kindness to a people. And that's the way it's translated most often in the New Testament. It's not a random act of kindness. It's not God's in a good mood. I guess I'll be kind today. No, it is a determined kindness intertwined with his love, his divine kindness. It has the idea of being benevolent, but it's a divine benevolence. And so it's furnishing what is needed and what is needed is we were dead and we were enslaved and we were shackled and we needed to be set free. We need to be made alive. We need to be raised and ultimately to be seated with Christ. And then notice it is this kindness towards us. Towards us. Jew and Gentile alike. The Ephesians being Gentiles and Asia Minor there to Jew and Gentile alike and to you individually, child of God. His kindness has been revealed to you. The word is translated in Titus 3, 4, but when the kindness of God our Savior in his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of works and deeds which we have done in righteousness, but there the kindness. And that's speaking of the very incarnation of God, very incarnation of Jesus coming into the world to dawn human flesh. You see the word in Romans 2, 4, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you 
to repentance. There's that kindness again. Furnishing what is needed. Benevolence in action towards his people. Well, finally, when will all this take place? It's at the beginning of the verse, so that in the ages to come, he might show forth. Now, there's some debate as to when this is. Is this speaking of only future? Is this speaking of now and future? Is this speaking of only one age, or is this ongoing for all, on, for all time? The text speaks of the age is, plural, to come. One man said, the new life begun will endure forever so that the manifestation of God's grace will be always renewing itself. In 2 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul writes to that persecuted church there and says, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, to be marveled at among all who have believed. But it's more here. As F.F. F. Bruce says, he, he speaks of the limited, limitless future. As age succeeds, age succeeds, age. He gives something like an illustration as each wave just continues to come on the shore. Age will succeed age. So that the crowning display of God's grace will be forever and be his kindness to his people. And so clearly, this is now and especially in all eternity. This is not for one season. This has not come to this event where the trophies and the monuments are on display. It is for all eternity. What an amazing thing. Look around at your brothers and sisters, fellow monuments that will be on display. <laughs> if that doesn't warm your heart, man, that's, that's, that's exciting stuff. Thank you, Lord. Well, let's draw a concluding application for us a couple of applications let me ask you a simple question are you dead or alive the last few weeks we've been talking about that are you dead spiritually have you yet to be born again or are you alive have you been made alive have you been regenerated by the power of the holy spirit and through his great love you know if someone was to collapse right now what would we do we have a doctor in the back, but, but if, if the doctor wasn't here, what would we do? We'd check the airway. We'd check for breathing, right? Do we, do we implement CPR? My wife and I took a CPR course this last week, so um, <laughs> this is fresh in my mind. And, and, and so that's what you do. If there's no vital signs, you begin CPR to try to resuscitate, right? Well, check yourself. Do you have signs of life? Is the breathway open? Is the airway open, rather? Are you breathing? Are there vital signs that are there? Do you have signs of a spiritual life? Do you have new desires? Do you desire fellowship with God? Do you love to be among His people? Check the vital signs. If you have not believed in Jesus as the only Savior to atone for your sins, you are lost and spiritually dead, according to Ephesians 2. You may have many things. You may have a great career. You may have seven digits in your savings account. You may have big houses and friends and popularity and all of this. But if you lack peace and reconciliation with God, you will go to hell. Eternally separated from a God that is so kind and loving and full of grace. My friend, God is patient with you. If you're here today and you're unconverted, every breath that you breathe every heartbeat that beats in your chest is a gift from him even all these things that are tokens of his goodness eating good food 
being satisfied, sleeping in comfortable beds, all of these physical things that, that are in your life that make you comfortable are tokens of his goodness. And when you consider one third of the world doesn't even have those, and there's some that just delight in Christ so much. Though they're hungry, though they live in horrible, poor conditions, God has saved them. And you have all of these outward tokens. You must see your sin as sin before a holy and perfect God and then repent, confess that you can't save yourself. You are one breath from hell. I think of that vivid sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that Jonathan Edwards sermon that God was pleased to use that had people shaking in their pews as it's recorded for us. And that illustration where he says, it's as though there is a huge open pit over the flames of hell and you're hanging by a spider web or by a thread and it's the mere goodness of God that sustains you from falling in today. It's his goodness. It's the mere pleasure of God that you're sustained for one more day. So if you don't know him, cry out. Look to Christ as a suitable Savior. And for those of us who are saved, we have seen what lengths God has gone to save him, to save his people. And what a beautiful picture we have in Ephesians 1 and 2. And I'm reminded of that justice of God as it's set forth in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, he was a sinless Savior, to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Substitution. He stood in the place of his people. You see, we were all in the death valley of sin, lost and hopeless, but through Christ's resurrection, we too have been raised to the highest heaven, even the peak of Whitney, as it were. We are fully alive. Listen to Spurgeon once again. God loved us even when we were dead in sins. His love does not depend on what we are, it flows from his own heart. And it is not love of something good in us. It is love of us because of everything good in him. Here you see the greatness of his grace and that he loved us even when we were dead in sins. Our salvation is all of grace. And I hope you do not tire of hearing it. We love because he first loved us. John Newton said, he says that, when we get to heaven, there will be three wonders. Number one, who is there? Number two, who is not there? And number three, the fact that I'm there. Brothers and sisters, it's passages like this that gives us assurance of heaven. Knowing that you cannot earn any favor with God apart from repentance and faith in Christ. That your good works are for nothing. Yes, there's a place for that. We'll see that next week, Lord willing. We are his workmanship created for good works. But that doesn't earn our salvation. But we can have assurance. I read this poem this week, and I'll end with this. My name is written there as a title. Though humble and obscure below, my name is there in heaven I know. Tis written by the hand of God, tis written with the Savior's blood. Twas there before day and night, in beams of God's unerring light. By Jesus' blood, twas crimson dyed, when he for me was crucified. 
Tis there by Jesus' worth alone. For worth or credit have I none, and nothing less than sin in him can ever that inscription dim. Let such as know no second birth labor to write their name on earth. My joy is this, that love divine on heaven's scroll has written mine. My name is written there. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you so much for the riches of your grace, the surpassing riches of your grace. How we thank you for the greatness of your love. How we thank you for our Savior that bled and died and purchased our salvation. Lord, may we live lives that reflect that we are indeed citizens of heaven. Lord, may we be those that seek to glorify you in glad, joyful, thankful response for all that you have done in us. Help us, O oh Lord, to love you more, to find a beauty in Christ, a new facet of that glorious diamond, as it were, every day that we fall in love more and more with each passing day. And how we long to see you face to face. How we long to see the other monuments of your grace in that great day. In Jesus' name.